so I, I, feel, I feel remiss that I, don't really, I didn't really sort of welcome and thank all of you people for coming and, and participating. I thank the speakers and the volunteers, but uh, of course, it'd be a little small and, and uh, less interesting if, if uh, all of you weren't here too. So I'm glad we got to do this again, and we'll certainly do it again next year. And, uh, and as you heard, uh, the conversations will continue up uh, with the Monica Demis dinner in a little bit. And we also have a, a cash bar, not much, for uh, wine and beer that'll be open uh, after Rebecca Brown's talk. So you can't go up now. Um, so uh, it's my pleasure to introduce Rebecca Brown, our, our last speaker. Uh, uh, a writer known to many of you. She has a dozen books and another one. I don't know the title, but you have a book coming out this year? You'll find out soon. Find out soon, right? And, uh, and the background on, on another Stranger Genius Award winner, uh, but the, the back, part of the background, there's always a story and, and the way our lineup usually works, although sometimes it's very creative and last minute too. Uh, Brendan and I usually meet at Cafe Press and we say like, oh God, it's February. We haven't really put together, you know, a, a list of speakers. We haven't contacted anybody. Yeah, we should get on this. And then, uh, and then Bethany gets involved and has a few suggestions too. But I mean, but we're very open to suggestions and hearing from others. Um, but one of the confessions is like, oftentimes people end up on the list uh, for a long time. Like we keep, and, and it just doesn't happen. Uh, for some reason, maybe the numbers or whatever happens. But Rebecca, you were one of those people who actually, it's so great that you're here because Brendan has, has year after year after year said, yes, well, B Rebecca Brown said, yes, Rebecca Brown. And I, 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 not kidding, I think you've probably been on the list for the last six years and we're finally getting around to it. So I'm so happy you're here and, uh, and, and we'll... Uh, uh, now hear from you, and uh, great, welcome. So six years, and then I'm here for the seventh, so I guess you're on sabbatical from thinking about me after next year. Um, so it's a tremendous uh, pleasure for me to be here. Um, thank you so much, Stuart um, and Brendan and Absentia, and all you folks that run this place. Um, Darcy and Matt and uh, Monica and Jen and Tony who made us food and um, the people who, people who keep their dogs on leashes and the people who let their dogs off leash so I can play frisbee with it. So it's just, it's a real joy. And, uh, and a big super shout out to all of you who have stayed here till six o'clock. Um, but as you know, the bar doesn't open till I finish. So <laughs> you might as well be here, right? Um, so, um, um, uh, so I'm not, I don't, uh, I don't give papers really. I'm, I'm, a, I'm an artist and a writer and so the sort of big think is not, not my thing. I, I did have a bunch of things to say about the new, new Gothic in the Age of Assault. There's a, a lot of exciting literature happening in, in contemporary American fiction. Um, people doing this new Gothic that has to do with dystopia and, and then I, and Hawthorne and Poe and just all these things I really, really, really love and get obsessive about. But even my wife becomes bored when I talk about them. So I thought um, I was given a golden opportunity to today um, when I found out I'd be speaking last to um, instead be able to kind of um, 
help help us, I guess, move from the, the bardo of these talks to uh, the next phase of dinner. Um, so I just wanted to kind of reflect on um, some of the things I've heard, I've heard today and then try to talk about them in the context of what story is and what a story is. Um, and then I'd like to read some, some of the gothic stories from um, my own new book. Um, so I guess the first thing, um, Stuart talked about us being in a bardo phase, and of course that's a term, as I understand it, from um, religion, being, being between worlds, um, not in this world, the next world, and you're not quite sure where you are. And to me, that's one of the pleasures of um, the mysteries, uh, the pleasures of the imagination, and that story can exist in a place that we don't really have to understand it, and indeed we actually can't. And so I, I take the easy out of people can ask me to explain like how my writing comes to be, and I just, I, I don't know. Um, and I, have, I don't have the responsibility of um, doing like legitimate research on uh, the, the history of a basin or um, looking at the history of, of information. And so it's a sort of bardo thing of the world in which we live um, physically um, and the world we don't understand sort of metaphysically. Um, and so in some ways the, the, the function of story is a little bit like fake news. Um, it's um, something that doesn't happen, but the intent is less one of guile and manipulation against something than a, an intent of manipulation towards something deeper. And, and what is that deep thing? In the words of the great um, artist and critic, Ian Forster, he talked about the final test of the novel being the human heart. Um, he does a long essay about how many words it might be and the genres of it and the history of it. He said, but the final test is really our affection for it. And so the idea of like the primacy of the human physical body, but also the sort of metaphorical body. I mean, Eileen talked about the Columbia Basin as a heart and a lung. And immediately there's a kind of us, we're present there and that we can, we can understand, whether we can understand ourselves or not, we live in this physical thing. So the, the connection of the world being literal and physical um, literature, I think, I think has a lot, a lot to do with that. Um, Elaine also talked about correcting a mythology, correcting mythologies of um, the, some of the floods and stuff. And, and I, I think the notion of correcting mythology in historical terms is interesting, but I think one of the things a story tries to do is like um, continue to live with mythologies, less than, you know, the, the real version of Humpty Dumpty is this, and I'm gonna go back to the correct version of that rather than like, these are stories that tell us something about our sides over and over and over. Um, certainly the form of the tale, which I'm really involved in, um, are not the sort of great big thousand word masterpieces that people have in their libraries or impress people and don't read. Tales are something that you don't have to be precious to read or even read at all. They're sort of, for, for any kind of unified culture, and I'm guessing many of us as a sort of white and middle-class American culture of a certain age, we probably grew up with like Disney fairy tales or Disney movies um, or picture books that had tales of the golden goose and a little red riding hood. And these stories are told over and over in cultures um, and they change with the retellings as they need to. Um, and so in many ways, um, the sort of mobile story is a, is a carrier of different meanings throughout history, but also kind of always fundamentally going back to who are we in, in an interior space that's kind of mysterious in ways that can't be described realistically, like in the news or in a realistic narrative. So um, 
In some ways, a story, a fairy tale reconnects us with mythology. Um, Leslie also talked about um, one of the troubles of Messiah complexes in religion, indeed, religion in, in general, is this sort of being, um, and, and also um, your own illness, of being disgustingly literal. And one of the things about fairy tales is that they're like, you know, nobody really thinks the goose laid a golden egg, but we're all willing to go along with that ride to see what does it tell us about material need? What does it tell us about family? What does it tell us about people manipulating one another? Um, and so there's something about um, using uh, realism, taking something literal and making it extreme that, that has a particular function of uh, story and fairy story. Um, um, in, uh, in, in Barack's talk, there was the phrase of um, the slow fading of consciousness, which we understood in the, in the context of dementia and aging as a, as a really kind of tragic, tragic thing. Um, and then Barack talked about the sort of periods of dementia that can be really violent, and then after that, someone's just kind of like in the zone, right? And that doesn't sound positive to me that someone stops being violent. But there's something about this like a loss of consciousness or going to a sort of slightly between waking, waking consciousness and sort of dead is a sort of dreamy, mythy consciousness that fairy tale and story can operate within. And certainly my own experience of helping my mother die and helping uh, a number of people die when I did home care for many years, a lot of times people nearish death start saying things out loud that sound like beautifully fantastic, like amazing things they're seeing that are kind of like, oh my God, that's, that's like a fairy tale. Um, and there are also things they see that are horrific and awful. But the idea of how our, our mind makes images and story to try to explain things, and that as a dying person might be trying to explain what they're seeing of the other world, or maybe there's a babbling, but we try to make sense of it in the same way that try, sometimes we try to make sense of story and it's not, there's not just one meaning to it, but it's about like giving us a sense of the broadness and mysteriousness of, um, mysteriousness of our spirit. Um, um, when um, Blaze started talking, one of the first things he talked about was um, we are a warlike and nasty people. And that was like, God damn it, I'm with you on that one, bro. Um, <laughs> And, and I think one of the functions, and the, my stories are often very, very dark, so it's kind of like, as Leslie talked about the thing about like, what's, why do we have faith in words? I mean, why, I mean, why write at all? In my own case, why do I write such like despairing, awful, emotionally, physically violent stories often? Um, and actually with that, I think I'll just stop, and I just, not, no. Um, and, um, <laughs> And partly it's to, um, when I go back to my own experience as a reader of uh, recognizing a sort of interior state in a piece of writing, looking, like, looking at Kafka or Beckett, for example, and kind of feeling like, you know, someone else has been in this state and described it really well. Or someone else is describing something that they got out of. Or, um, and, and indeed in fairy tales, like, oh my God, you have to go get these three jobs, you have to do these three jobs and come back and do something, it's like, yeah, you can do it. And so kind of the point of the fairy tale is to give you these extreme stories of things that someone can conquer, or these extreme stories of things that somebody didn't conquer, but they lived to tell the tale. Which if you take that literally, it's like, fuck, my holy job is to just live long enough to tell the tale? Yeah, but it still means you're alive. Um, and that is kind of hopeful, actually. Um, and, um, and then finally, this, uh, one of the things that um, Blaze talked about in the um, sense of the sort of existential, like, oh my God, a machine's gonna take over and um, 
you know, are they, is there a battle between human and machine? It's a really interesting thing about, and, and I think Blaze was making a case for, I, I, not, I didn't understand the intelligence stuff for obvious reasons, um, but, um, but the sort of this notion of like, are we becoming robots? And it's kind of like a lot of contemporary Gothic and a lot of dystopian stuff is about, am I a human or am I a robot? And the sort of, where does humanity intersect with the non-human? And if you look back at the history of fairy tales, certainly in uh, Western Europe, a lot of fairy tales are about what are the interactions of human and animal, right? Like in the forest, we lived close, close to, fox and bear and geese, and it was kind of like, oh my God, is the bear gonna teach me wisdom? Is the fox gonna help me run away? Is the wolf gonna eat me or rape me? But this relationship between human and animal, do animals know more than me, can I talk to them? The frog, you know, oh my God, if the frog is talking to me, he'll turn into a prince. So this sort of, this, this fear and joy of human-animal relationship, you can kind of see an obverse of it, it's like, are we turning into that? The ro will robots give us joy or overtake us? Will they, is there a period of darkness I need to go through to light or am I just gonna be killed by the wolf and that's the end of the story? Um, and um, so there you have it. So um, a lot of these issues about the consciousness, what is intelligence, what is language for, what is a myth, um, they're all bound up in story and they're more easily bound up in story when the stories aren't realistic. Um, so part of my draw to fairy tales, um, actually I wouldn't even say it's a draw to it. My writing is really very unconscious, it just kind of happens, and only retrospectively kind of comment on it or understand it. So in the past I've written lots of things to and from fairy tales, and now I can say it's because I studied them as a kid, because they help you understand darkness, blah, 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 blah. Um, where's my water? Oh, here's the great thing that happens in fairy tales. The person is having trouble, and then a stranger comes along to help. <laughs> Sometime with the simplest thing, like a glass of water. Thank you, wolf, or woodsman, or bear, or frog, whoever you might be. Um, this new book is called Not Heaven, Somewhere Else. Um, and um, I'm gonna read three pieces from it um, that are kind of in an that are in an arc. So they are three different pieces, but regard them as one, and I'll, I'll pause between them and might say something, but um, uh, I, I'm not, I'm, I don't want response to the very end. Um, and if you, you should hear elements in all of these things of things you've heard before, like, oh, isn't that from there? And of course, that's how we regard history. Like, oh, which one was the one who, was it, it would, to actually, today we're talking about what statue was that? Was that Iwo Jima? No, no, no. It was the it was the soldier statue with the girl. Oh, right, right. Was it Jane Mansfield? No, it was it was, it was no in Maryland. And you, we kind of mix up history, um, and that's um, fairy tales. Okay, the pigs. Once upon a time, there were the pigs. They all lived in the same house, not in three. That might have been easier, but might have not. It might have been nothing could help, but who can tell? There were two of them big and a little one, not a little girl visitor like Goldilocks. She lived there. She was the baby pig. There wasn't a wolf. There was only them, but they would do. There was huffing and puffing and blowing down and huffing and puffing and blowing each other to smithereens. One day the house went up. Actually, it took longer than one day, but I'm telling it like the way I want. It smelled like a barbecue. 
One of the pigs, though, before she got out, got completely cooked, got out. I'll let you guess which one. Um, um, only after I let a number, a couple of friends read this, um, uh, one, of the, one of the guys here read it and said, oh my God, that's, that's like so feminist. It's so much about gender. And, and I was just like, really? Um, and, and, then, and then I realized as I went back and looked at this, particularly now in the context of the Me Too movement, I was kind of like, God, I didn't even think of that because it was just like so, my, my wallpaper is so uh, female trained and fem even, I mean, even, even being a sort of tomboy and a boorish dyke, it's like my wallpaper is still so female behavior, not quite the polite little English girl that my friend Leslie was. What was the, your phrase there? Well-behaved little English girl? Yeah, I was a scrappy little American girl, but we were... Well, well enough behaved. The girl who cried wolf. Help, help, she cried. Wolf, wolf. The wolf had bitten off her hand. There was a stump. Red, stringy, drippy things hung from it, dripping like the underside of a tree ripped out by its heart. There was that purple-black stuff that coursed and would co coagulate as if toward healing, a favorite word amongst these people. Also, something white in the middle. Help, help, she cried. Help, help. Now, now, another said, for she was not alone. Settle down, dear. What is it this time? Wolf, she cried again. Help, help. Again, another sighed, for this had all been heard before. I don't see any wolf. The others were there to help. Does anyone else see a wolf? There was a shaking of many heads, the rolling of many eyes, the weary smiles of almost affection. Uh, or lions and tigers and bears? Here there's a little laugh. Oh my, ha ha. Is there something you'd like to share with me? Now there was another wolf. It had come from behind. Its teeth grabbed her left calf. The hand that was gone was the right one. Um, maybe they were going for a kind of catty corner look this time, for a kind of asymmetric look. This wolf felt smaller. She twisted her head around to see. It was. Was it the other wolf's cub? Was the mama wolf trying to teach the baby wolf? Its teeth were sloppy, almost tentative on her calf. This wound would not be clean. Was the baby wolf learning? She hoped so. She hoped the baby wolf wasn't doing this sloppily, intentionally to prolong this. That wouldn't be nice. Should she sympathize with the baby wolf trying to learn but only doing things sloppy and wrong? She tried very hard to be sympathetic. Oh, wolf, she cried again. Wolf, help! The big wolf was still there, gnawing on her hand, which was no longer attached to her, as one would gnaw on a barbecued rib. Not me, however, I'm vegetarian. She was glad she didn't feel that one anymore. She did feel the other one, though. Its teeth were in the skin, then muscle, then against the bone of her calf. Why calf? How did... How did, or did, quote, the fleshy part at the back of a person's leg below the knee, New Oxford American Dictionary, relate to, quote, a young bovine animal, especially a domestic cow or bull in its first year, close quote, or, quote, the young of some other large animals, such as elephants, rhinoceroses, large deer, and antelopes and whales, and, or, quote, a floating piece of ice detached from an iceberg, close quote. The calf being detached from her would not float, 
It was being rent from her by her teeth, not global warming. Though iceberg calves might be considered similar in that they too drip in a manner of speaking, though whether they are all or most of these days caused by global warming, excuse me, climate change, or natural phenomenon, or a hoax perpetuated by the Chinese, or a combination thereof to whatever degrees is are matters of debate. Are melting ice caps a sign of the world's impending doom? What is the responsibility of a concerned citizen in the face of such dripping calving? The wolf pulled the calf apart almost away until it hung by a string of a sprig of flesh until that was bitten free, whereupon there was the scarring, the gushing, the dizziness, the almost blacking out, the almost falling, the actual falling, etc. It usually happens similarly. Wolf, wolf, she sputtered. Help, help, wolf. I'm afraid I don't see any wolf, dear, and I'm afraid none of the rest of us do either. Her mouth was a rictus. She was tired of her shenanigans. I, I'm, not, I'm not making this up. She lifted to show them her bloody stump. All right, another pursed her lips, exacerbated, and took the hand, or not hand, or stump, to shake as if it were there to shake. The hand went on and then around the end of the stump or hand or not hand or air, fingers gripping hardly where the wolf had bitten it off. It would have felt, if one could feel, like those old homemade Halloween haunted house bowls of spaghetti with grapes, but with the additional ingredients of bitten off ends of forearm, carpus, and metacarpus. She shook the stump that was not a hand as if in friendliness. For the others were friendly. They were there to help. She wanted to scream when the other's hand went on, then around, then shook the bloody stump, but didn't. She still tried very hard to be polite. She felt like she wasn't there. She felt like she was standing in a crowd, like in Grand Central Station at rush hour or some other place she'd never actually been in real life. But it was the only way she could think of, screaming her head off and zillions of people walking by, but nobody heard her or acted like they didn't, she couldn't tell, which made her feel crazy, which maybe she was, or maybe that was an excuse, but she was past caring by now. Help, help, she muttered quietly, not to anyone anymore. Help, 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 help. Oh yeah, there's another thing Leslie quoted earlier today, that song, It's Now or Never. And I was thinking about fairy tales are, um, it's now or never, that's the song, right? Um, and the fairy tales are like, it's now and never. Meaning the fairy tales never really happen. They're like long ago and far away. But also they're like eternally now. Like wherever you are, there's a sort of interior theme that continues to occur, right? It's not like they were over with, but like they never happened, but they're always happening. Um, what was your phrase again, Blaze? Horrible, shitty people, a bad species, what was it? The, 
something like that, horrible shitty people. Um, you, you see why I asked, had to ask about the cuss words, Jim? Sorry about that. Okay. Um, the brothers, and this is the last piece I'll read. Um, Once upon a time, there were the brothers. The place they lived was winter. It was always white and cold, and always it was light. Despite the things the brothers did that never should be done at all, but if they are done in the dark, in darkness and with furtiveness, the brothers did them in the broadest light. Perhaps it was their nature. Around the place the brothers lived, there was a mountain range and hills, but nobody ever went there. At least they never went alone, for if they did, then they did not come back. Although the brothers seemed to not remember this, the brothers remembered many things, but others they forgot. Once upon a time, we all were brothers. Always it was winter there, the light was always winter light, abrupt and sharp and brittle, in some way beautiful, but also with a glare, so everyone had to squint. It was as if, as bright as it was, what they were seeing was not what was. It never darkened, was never night, despite the things the brothers did, which never should be done at all, but if they are done in the darkness and with furtiveness, with shame, without a heart. The brothers did these things, though they were brothers. Always it was light and it was brilliant, almost blindingly. White snow covered everything and everything looked crisp and pure, unsullied, clean and fresh, and sounded sort of like that too. That is to say, it sounded very quiet, soft and muffled. The sound of the pad of your feet was a tiny swish, like the sound of the paw of a careful cat. You almost couldn't hear it. The sounds were the sounds of snow on needles and branches, of snow falling in air, a sound of whiteness, less than breath, the sound almost of nothing. So quiet you had to work to hear. So hard to hear, the brothers stopped listening. Then they didn't hear at all. Perhaps this was their nature too. There also was an owl. She lived up in the trees where she could look and sigh and shake her head, which sometimes shook the snowy branches and the snow fell down. If someone was below the tree, he might look up, but mostly no one did because the brothers were busy. On the one hand, the owl tried to stay above it all, away from the things the brothers did, for she could not prevent them, but sometimes she couldn't help herself. Who, said the owl, who, who? But none of the brothers answered her. Then pleadingly, as if with tears, why, oh why, said the owl. But the same thing, no one listened. Sometimes also the owl said, when? But they ignored her. The owl wasn't happy, but she didn't give up. Though she was more or less just talking to herself, dithering, nattering, blubbering on like a lunatic, a bag lady, and no one who nobody listened to, she kept asking, who, when? Because who knew, the owl hoped, if that is not too strong a word, one day one of the brothers might. Maybe because they always had, or because they thought they needed to, or because it was their nature, the brothers did the things they did, 
or maybe there is no reason at all, as if it was the nature of everything. Always it was winter there, and always the brothers did the things they did. Some of the things they did weren't much. They stood around and wandered around, and they walked back and forth and around. They sat around and folded their hands. They met for meetings and processed, discussed, debated, input stuff. None of them had to listen to do any of this. There are, that's a joke, you should laugh. Get it? Okay. Um, their eyelids drooped, they slouched, they napped, they snored and snoozed and thought up other things to do. Some of these things were nothing almost, but some of them were not. Some of the things were terrible, and some of them were worse. One day, a day like most of the rest, the brothers were doing what they did. They were gathered in their team or circle or collective or mob around one of their brothers, and they were kicking him. They were beating the shit out of him. He was crouched on the snowy, white, pretty ground, and he was begging them. He was pleading with them to stop, which none of them heard, of course. They were throwing stones at him, big ones, really huge ones, for beneath all that pretty, white, muffling snow, it's a nasty, gnarly place the brothers live with huge, big, nasty rocks. They were knocking this guy around, clawing his eyes out, strangling him with their bare hands, crushing his Adam's apple with their sports shoes, breaking his teeth and ripping out his tongue. They were garroting, flaying, disemboweling, and via this device they had ingeniously devised out of some boulders and logs and other stuff into a kind of lever or fulcrum thingy, they were tearing via his cartilage and soft, weak connective tissues him from limb to limb. They were stringing it by rope, and they were hanging him from a tree. The thing that made this day not exactly like most days was that this day, one of the brothers, not the poor bastard who was getting it, but one of the ones who was giving it to the poor bastard who was getting it, got this weird feeling. It was like there was, brush, there was a brush of air alongside him, like the side of him was suddenly cold, well, colder. Sort of a little breeze, but not even that. Nothing as substantial as air. Something less substantial. Maybe it was something in or on the air, this thing without substance. It was like this not thing approached the side of his head, then went near his ear, then into his ear. There was tickling in his ear, like a bug got in a fluttering. And he slowed down his garroting, flaying, etc. Not so much that the other brothers would notice, because he knew, as all other brothers did, to never ever do that. But he slowed enough to pay a kind of attention he had not paid in ages. Then he felt like part of him was back from somewhere else, but he wasn't sure where, like something was just the tip of a tip of a wave from the tip of his tongue, but he couldn't remember. Then his arms were suddenly heavy and it felt painful, physically, bodily painful, to keep doing what he was doing to his brother. Our guy's arms dripped to his sides like they weren't his own, like he was a gorilla or doll or zombie in a bad B movie. He stood like that and stared like that, like there was something wrong with him. Then it was like he was seeing, actually seeing for the first time in his life what he, what he and the brothers, his brothers, were doing physically, bodily, painfully to the other guy, their brother. And after our guy looked, really looked at the guy they were doing it to, he realized what that cold, tickling sensation at the side of his head had been. He had heard something. Had it sounded like who? 
he didn't remember, like why he wasn't sure, like you, our guy forgot. Had it sounded to him like you, had it sounded like you, the brother stopped and stood and looked and listened. Snow fell down from a tree above. He cocked his head like a dog does when it's trying to hear something far away, then very, very cautiously, so as not to draw attention to himself, our guy took a little step backward. It was just a baby step, but with it, he heard beneath his body the swish of snow, the crunch of the crust of the top of it, the fall of snow from a tree. Then he took another step, and he heard his own body, his pulse and his breath, the way his eyes were trying to blink as if to get something out. And he took another step away from the mob of brothers and the poor bastard. Then another step, this one bigger, and then he heard the poor bastard. He heard the poor bastard's racing pulse, his panting breath. Then our guy took another step, and he heard the mob and everything they were doing to the poor bastard. And then our guy took another step, and he was out of the mob, and he was turning. He ran away. The brothers, who were so busy beating their brother to a bloody pulp, didn't notice that another of their brothers, our guy, had turned away and run. Though probably the only one who might have noticed anyway because he was facing him was the poor bastard who was getting it. But the poor bastard who was getting it was trying to hold his hands over his head as if to protect himself, crouching down and trying to turn away as if to escape the stones, electric prods, skewers, etc., which he could not escape. So I doubt the poor bastard noticed our guy, but maybe he did. Maybe it would have been nice to see before the final blow that knocked his brains to smithereens, a vision that one of his brothers had stopped doing what the others were and turned away from that. Our guy had turned away and he had run, and as he ran, he heard more things. It's not exactly quiet when a gang of people is beating the living shit out of someone, but oddly enough, while our guy hadn't participated with his brothers in doing these things, he hadn't heard what he, what they, were doing to anyone else at all. It was like while he was doing it, the whole thing was a TV show, a docudrama about some place long ago or some faraway land and with the sound turned off. It was like our guy had been like all of the rest of his brothers had been, watching what he was doing, what they were all doing, but not really seeing it, not really hearing it, not even doing it. It was like someone else was doing it. No, not even that. It was like no one was doing it. It was like it was just happening, as if all by itself. And it was like the guy they were doing it to, like all the other guys they had done it to in the past and would do in the future, were not quite real, not quite humanly, human, and certainly not a brother, except they were. They were brothers. They all were brothers. But then as our guy turned away, it was like the mute on the remote had flipped back on and he could hear, and more with each step away, the volume turned up. It got louder and louder the further he ran, like he developed some weird kind of Superman x-ray vision thing only a la hearing, and he could hear, 
He could not not hear the astonished surprise of the poor bastard, the pleas and the cries of the poor bastard, his panting breath, breath, his racing pulse, the smack of each and every stone against his skin, the jab and the tearing, the lacerations, blood, the mess, the crack of the bone, the gurgle in his throat, him trying to beg, then further smacks of stone and fist, etc., each willful, cruel, and wicked thing, each terribly thought through, murdering thing his brothers did. Maybe our guy was trying to outrun it, but he couldn't. He ran as far away as he could, then he came to a hill. Nobody ever went to the hills, at least nobody went alone. But our guy had, in fact, been to the hills before, but only with his brothers, not alone. He'd been there with the mob of them when they were chasing after some other brother, somebody who had, unnoticed at first, as unobtrusively as he could, so as not to draw attention, stopped doing what his brothers were doing and run away. Then after the brothers had finished up with the first guy they were working on and someone else, some ones that is, no one ever did alone, but only a group, a gang, a bunch, did notice that someone had gone away and they went after him. Our guy knew all this somewhere inside himself. That is to say, he'd known it once, but then forgotten, but now remembered it. He knew his brothers would come after him. He knew what they would do. He also knew that it would take a while for them to finish what they were doing with the poor bastard they were working on. So our guy knew that if he hurried, he could return and be back in among his brothers before they'd noticed he was gone. He could thereby, for the time being, save his skin. He thought of this a moment. He sat beneath the tree to think. Our guy had run a lot and he was tired, beat almost. He was hearing his own racing pulse, his weary breath, but also, as from far away, the sounds of the poor bastard getting it. He was hearing the way of hearing that weird post-breath silence of the dead. He heard it and didn't recognize it. He heard and hadn't heard a silence that was real, a silence that was a thing itself. It was the sound of someone being dead. Our brother dropped his head into his hands and wept. He wept and wept and wondered who the guy they'd done it to was. He'd never thought of that before, who any of the poor sods were, the ones they did it to, if they had names or what color hair or eyes, what made them different or the same as other brothers, what color skin or fat or thin, if he had ever loved. Who, our guy wondered out loud to himself, who was that guy? He didn't know. He realized that one of the reasons he didn't know was because he had never asked. He'd never asked another brother many things before. Then Argyle realized that even if someone had tried to tell him long ago, he would not have heard. Maybe the dead guy, or one of the many of the dead, of the dead that he and his brothers killed, had tried to tell, but no one had listened. Who, he asked himself again, who, who? Then Argyle wondered more. Why, he cried out loud, why had he and his brothers done these things? Why did they do them yet? Then he wondered how he could. Me, he wondered, me? 
His face was in his hands and he was weeping. A guy was in the snow beneath a tree. Above him in the branches was a rustling like something moving or had been there and had flown. Our guy looked up. He looked up at the branch where something was but was no more and wept. He wept for what he'd done himself and what his brothers did. He wept for what the brothers did as willfully and cruelly, as wickedly and terribly, as if it was their nature. I said earlier that for a while the brothers didn't notice Argy run away, but that was only for a while. Then they did, and then they came after him. Our brother heard them coming from behind. He heard their stamping feet, their eager breath, their grunting, happy cries. He knew, because of how he'd been, that nothing he could do or say would stop them. He knew that nothing he could say or do would change them. He did not know why he had changed. Why had he suddenly, surprisingly, as if with grace, heard things that they had not? Perhaps it was his nature. He sat alone to wait for them. He knew they'd be upon him soon and do what they would do. But maybe our guy considered, or even hoped, if that is not too strong a word, one of the brothers wouldn't. Maybe one of the brothers would slow or stop or for some reason no one knows, hear something in the winter air and change. He waited for them differently, as was his nature now, with pity and forgiveness for the things that they would do. Thank you for listening. I also would like to get a drink, but I would also be very happy to take comments or questions or tell you about my book or um, thank you again for being here. Any, any one, anything? Hi, Sarah. Hi, Rebecca. What's your favorite word? No, I'm just joking. Sarah um, and I had a conversation about <laughs> Q&A. In the yeah. nightmare of a, a literary Q&A, what's your favorite word? Um, I was thinking when you were talking about fairy tales before you read yours, one of the things that occurred to me after you read them was the other stamp of fairy tales is that there's a lesson, right? And I was so intrigued that you sort of, beyond all the words and the narratives that you changed and used and created, you created a different lesson for sort of each of these. And I think, especially for the middle story, all of a sudden I had this revelation about, oh my God, there's this story about a girl who, basically the lesson was, you know, don't complain too much or else you won't be believed. <laughs> and just thinking when you're taking these on and writing something new, did you come to you know, thinking about that in, as a woman, or, you know, just like, oh, what's another lesson, and going from there, or le letting your intuition lead you down the road, and I just, 
it just occurred to me like, oh, right, you just took that and made it about that she's telling the truth. Yeah, um, thank you, Sarah. Um, um, and um, as an artist and writer who makes story, I, we might have a similar process, but the idea of do I intend or know something in advance, I, I wish I could say that I know what I'm doing, but I, I really don't for a long time. Um, and, and in fact, um, this particular story, The Girl Who Cried Wolf, um, I write about girls and wolves a lot um, in sort of very, uh, whatever. Um, and, and in fact, this, um, for me, the, the, as I was working on the story and then read, I didn't read the complete version of the story um, to you, because um, it ends very badly. Um, um, <laughs> you got the soft ending, you got the soft ending. Um, <clears throat> um, and, um, and for me, it was a story about, um, indeed, someone saying something and people don't believe her. But there's also something about the, my particular experience of like, something is happening internally and you're saying, this is really awful. And people are saying, no, it's not, you'll be fine. And you're like, no, you, you don't, you really don't, this is like truly, truly awful. And it's like, well, if, you, if it was that awful, you couldn't talk about it. And you're like, I, you know, I think you've proved me right. It's like, it's just, it, you can't, and it's like, you know, get over it, you'll be fine. It's like, well, it's, it's gonna take its own time or something, right? Um, and so for me, it had nothing to do with the Me Too movement in particular. But when this guy, a friend of mine, who read it, says, oh my God, that's such a Me Too story. Like, this woman's been raped, and people won't believe her. I'm like, it's not about that, but it was for him. And he was like, yeah, and the boy who cried wolf, everybody leaves him, their town is wrong. It's just like, oh, right. But I, I was conscious of none of that. I just had, like, I know the phrase of boy who cried wolf. I know the story. It's like, well, this is a girl who really has been bitten by a wolf. And I didn't think of it as being, to me, it was just like, well, of course I'm going to write of a girl by a wolf. Like, what, what else is there to write about? Whereas my friend was like, no, you've like inverted the boy who cried wolf and they believed him. So I was like, so I did, so I did. Um, so, so, there's, so, so there's like, so there's like, there's like stories tell themselves to you, right? Or, or, or for me. Um, and there's also this notion of like, people have this in Western fairy tales, like there's a moral of the story at the end. And it was kind of like, so the moral of the story of Red Riding, whichever version you read, it's like, so the moral is don't go into the woods alone. Or the moral, this, Angela Carter rewrote this, uh, literally writing story many times, and she had a blast with it. And one of the morals of the story is like, in writing right, if it goes to the grandmother's house, and she and the woodsmen kill the grandmother, and they inherit the house, and they're rich, and they're just like, so the moral of the story is like, kill your grandmother and move into her house. <laughs> and, so it's, and just be clever. And so this idea of like, what, what actions mean is really shifty, right? And it's a little bit like what Blaze was talking about, like these actions of investigating these things. We're doing these things like, will it mean democracy or totalitarianism? Will it mean um, access to information and friends or will it mean the loss of privacy and the loss of human intimacy? And it's like, well, what do they mean? That's why we have to have thinkers, not just writers. I mean, some writers are thinkers, but I'm, anyway, so next. <laughs> for the reading, it was beautiful and, Thank you. and profound. And I, uh, at, like most of us, have always been drawn to, to dark uh, literature and things, you know, as a child. I am finding in this current moment that uh, I can't tolerate it uh, anymore. And I'm wondering how, how um, what is this dystopian movement doing to our kids? And what, how do we, 
deal with this kind of literature at the moment? Do you, I, I'd just love to hear, so why, why do this now? Um, well, that's, um, it's I'm so glad you asked about the, the kid part of it, because the topic of the, the, I think my title here is, um, um, how old am I? Uh, the New Gothic Tale in an Age of Assault. This topic, this topic arose because when, I, when Brendan and I first talked on the phone about me coming to Smoke Farm, he said, what do you think about these days? And I just come back from a teaching for a week, and I was teaching adults, um, and my colleague was teaching teenage kids. We taught during the mornings, and then we'd come together in the evenings. And we'd hear the work, and it was this great thing to do. And and many, many, many of the adults with whom I was working were writing um, sad personal stories. Um, I, I, my husband died, I lost my boyfriend, I don't know what to do with And they were just sad, sad personal stories of like self-interrogation. Um, and the young people's stories I heard, the high school kids, were all about zombies and werewolves and planets and the kind of anime cr creature stories. And, and I remember having lunch, I made a point to go sit and have lunch with the, I'm sorry? You're, you're in a relationship, aren't you, Sarah, with Siri? Do you want to step outside? Um, and, and I remember I, I made a point to go have lunch with some of these young people. So like, so tell me, you know, with the zombies in the world and the, and, the, and the dystopian. And partly it's like they'd all read um, Hunger Games. But it's kind of like, well, yeah, but where's the, where does it, why does it nurture you? Um, and, you know, most of these kids grew up after... Uh, I mean, they, 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 they grew up and have always grown up with environmental devastation and hearing about environmental devastation. Um, and certainly movies and YA literature is all about the planet is fucked. Um, and, and this sort of is, is the superhero thing an extension of I'm, I'm perfect, I'm, I'm fine as I am, but kids know they're really not fine as they are, so they've got to access it to Superman it. I, I don't know, but there's something about adults kind of get to this point of saying like, what have I done? And kids like, the world's crazy, I'll be Superman or a zombie. Um, and I don't get it, I really don't get it. But there's also, the, the new gothic, there's a, it's a, there's a fellow, I mentioned this guy, to Je, uh, Leslie Earle, a guy named Jeff Vandermeer, who did, did a book called The Southern Reach Trilogy, which is this amazing tri trilogy that's ostensibly about environmental devastation and then what it does to human devastation. Um, I don't know, I don't know. I mean, we're, I think we're aware the world is, the planet ecologically is kind of fucked, and we're just so aware of, when Leslie, who has mentioned 30 Years War? Leslie was like, oh, 30 Years War, and I'm like, God, we've been in Afghanistan for 17 years! And it's like, yeah, well, there was a 30 Years War. And you're like, oh, I guess it hasn't always been that bad. And, and so this, like, this, everything's kind of excess, right? And obviously fairy tales are about excess. Um, but I think there's something in fairy tales that is that also ultimately are trying to be about how to live, how to be how to be a child and leave home, right? The little girl goes in the woods. How do you do that as a little girl? Um, or if you're a little little boy and you have to like earn money for your family with a goose, how do you do that? And we've got I don't know. That was pretty useless. <laughs> Anybody else comment question? Okay, I appreciate you staying this late. Thank you very much. Thank you.